Welcome back to the program. During what was once considered the golden age of radio, from roughly the late 1920s until the late 1940s, advertising agencies were arguably the most important source of radio entertainment. Most nationally broadcast programs on radio were created, produced, and written or managed by advertising agencies. For those of you that are old enough, you might remember something like Kraft Music Hall or Maxwell House Showboat. When television came along again, it was the advertising agencies that produced and drove the entertainment decisions and production. If you've been watching Mad Men, you've seen the evolution of this. It's funny how today, in some ways, we seem to be coming back full circle to this notion of branded programming. My guest, Cynthia Myers, takes us back to this time gone by in her new book, A Word from Our Sponsor. Cynthia Myers is an associate professor of communications at the College of Mount St. Vincent in New York. And it is my pleasure to welcome her here to talk about a word from our sponsor, Admin Advertising and the Golden Age of Radio. Cynthia Myers, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. It is so interesting to look back on this period of time, both in this golden age of radio that you write about and even the way television came along with this idea that sponsors, that manufacturers, that products were looking for ways to reach consumers, to advertise, and it was really the idea of the entertainment vehicle being simply the vessel to get the ad there, and how advertising agencies really came to be at the forefront of this. Talk a little bit about the origins of this idea. Sure. Um, Well, in the 20s, um, people would broadcast programming for free, they'd have musicians come in, they wouldn't pay the musicians, and audiences who had receivers could receive the signal. So they had a business model problem. It was kind of like the internet of the 1920s. There was all this free content, and it was unclear how to finance it. And in the United Kingdom and Great Britain, they decided to tax the radio receivers, and that tax then paid for programming that then was overseen by the government. But here in the United States, they didn't want to do that. They didn't want the government having anything to do with media or news media or, you know, content at all. There's the First Amendment. So they encouraged commercial uses of airwaves. And one way they started doing that was by renting time to advertisers. But advertisers soon learned that people didn't want to listen to them just talking about their product. Um, They could only get audiences if they started providing entertainment um, so advertisers started like um, supplying things like music, and then they would just title the program um, after themselves. Like the Ever Ready Hour was um, a music program sponsored by a battery company, which also made radio batteries. Um, but when the Depression got started, um, broadcasters really did not want to carry the costs of creating programming, and they turned to advertisers and said, "Look, you know, just you know, produce." some entertainment, and we'll, we'll give you the airtime. We'll sell you the airtime. The advertisers, on the other hand, were worried that if they relied on show business people, the show business people would, you know, put on comedy and put on music and not really care about the advertisers' selling needs. So the advertisers then turned to advertising agencies as a way to um, bridge that gap. So the advertising agencies then became the production companies. The advertising agencies would choose a program. They would cast the program. They would write the program. They would, you know, advise the advertiser on what kind of program. Oh, we want a music program. or we want a drama program. And then the programs themselves were shaped and structured around the advertiser's um, um, advertising need. They were created to attract a certain kind of audience. 
also advertising agencies invented soap operas, which were targeted to housewives who were home during the day, doing the housework, and listening to these serial dramas where the narrative never ends. You have to tune in tomorrow to find <laughs> out what happens. And then, by the way, you hear another two-minute um, advertisement for a soap product. So each program on radio, it wasn't just... Um, it wasn't accidental um, why certain programs were selected by certain advertisers. And so what I think a lot of people don't know is that the advertisers and their agencies, they were the ones creating and selecting the broadcast programming. So if you heard Jack Benny, you heard him because General Foods and their ad agency, Young Rubicam, hired Jack Benny to help sell Jell-O. Talk a little bit about how the public responded to this. This nexus, we might see it today as this perhaps uncomfortable nexus between entertainment and marketing, but the public took it in a different way at that time. Well, the advertisers were hoping that the public would be grateful, and it was called goodwill advertising, that people would be so happy they were getting this free entertainment that they would go out and, and buy those products. Um, so there was a debate in the ad industry if, about whether or not that really worked. Um, and when the Depression came along, advertisers became much more anxious about selling, and so they started doing a lot more direct selling on the air. And so the hard-sell advertising strategy was this belief that advertising had to be informational, it had to be repetitive because audiences weren't too smart. And so you had a lot of programs where they had very long, repetitive advertising that kind of hit you over the head over and over again. And some um, audiences really resented that. In fact, there was a consumer movement against commercial radio. And what I think was really happening is that a lot of the criticisms of commercial radio were really criticisms of that kind of hard-sell, repetitive advertising. Mm -hmm. um, whereas other ad agencies use soft-sell advertising or corporate image advertising where the radio program wasn't designed so much to sell the products directly, but to create positive associations, to make people laugh, or to educate the public about American history, or something that also um, just sort of gave people a good feeling about the company. And that kind of programming was going on as well. It's interesting that when television came along, the same patterns, the same situations, essentially repeated themselves. Absolutely. And radio was so profitable and so successful by the late 1940s that nobody could imagine you know, that ever-changing. So they, they just, they tried to carry over a lot of those um, ideas about how to manage um, programming and advertising. However, there were several problems. First of all, um, sponsor control of programming meant that there was no way to create audience flow from one program to the next. So, for example, an advertiser at 8 o'clock might do a serious drama, and then an advertiser at 9 o'clock might do a funny comedy but the audiences for each of those were different, and so people would turn off the radio or switch, you know, stations. So um, broadcasters began to realize that they needed to take control over programming, um, but they still didn't want to pay for it. So when television came along, um, the production costs were ten times as much as radio. With radio, you just needed a script and a microphone. You could have um, one actor do four different characters. But once you get to television, you can't do that anymore. You need sets, costumes, lights, cameras. And advertisers realized it was costing them too much money, and they were only reaching a relatively small audience for one program. And the networks and the broadcasters realized that they needed to shape the programming to organize audiences. So by the end of the 1950s, you had something called participating sponsorship, where 
a bunch of advertisers would buy into a program and they would participate by by inserting advertisements throughout the program, which has then became the standard advertising financing program. So today, um, you know, most broadcasters, they create, produce, control the programming, and then advertisers just buy time in that programming in order to reach a specific kind of audience that gathers around that programming. And radio, the same thing happens in radio, where all the top drama and comedy programs shift over to TV, so Jack Benny leaves radio and goes to TV, um, and then radio then becomes a recorded music medium and a talk and news medium, both of which were a lot cheaper to produce. One of the things that happened early on during this golden age that we were talking about is that these advertising agencies, the J. Walter Thompsons, the Young and Rubicams, all the agencies, became very powerful forces, not only within the broadcasting business, but even as Hollywood started to evolve, because they controlled what was going to be on. Yes. In fact, what's really fascinating um, is um, uh, the intersection between Hollywood, the movie industry, and the radio and the advertising industry. Um, J. Walter Thompson, uh, a lot of agencies opened offices in Hollywood because a lot of them realized that stars were very effective for selling. And J. Walter Thompson had been using stars in their Lux soap print advertising for decades. And so when radio got started, they realized that audiences tuned in to hear famous stars. And so they developed programs around that idea. So Lux Radio Theater was built around Hollywood stars reenacting some of their famous movie roles for radio audiences. And then, by the way, they would talk about how they used Lux Soap at home. Um, uh, J. Walter Thompson also um, um, produced shows like Craft Music Hall um, and Bill, uh, Bing Crosby as a major radio star. But they, they scripted every line. They chose every guest star. They, they selected the musical selections. They, they wrote the advertising. Um, and so what happens is that um, there's this kind of tension between the movie industry, which um, saw itself as um, knowing how to produce popular entertainment, and the advertising industry that was also trying to use that entertainment to sell it was also the difference between an industry that was based in New York and one that was based in Los Angeles. Exactly. And um, a, a live radio production was initially based in places like Chicago and New York, and then it migrates to Hollywood. So by the 1940s, most of the top programs are coming out of um, Hollywood. However, Radio City Music Hall in New York City um, w was called that because it was the origin of a, a lot of top programs. It's also really interesting to see in terms of people, the people that were doing this programming within the advertising agencies became some of the leading lights of people that moved to networks, both radio and then television and then to Hollywood. The advertising agencies were really the breeding ground for the people that led the transitions in those businesses. Yes, exactly. And that's because they were they were interfacing with show business people, stars, advertisers, networks, stations. So they were the people who were the, the connection between all of those different worlds. And so when the, the shift to television happened, it was actually a number of people in the ad industry were concerned about continuing advertiser control of programming. First of all, they knew it could be abused by tyrannical sponsors. 
And there was a movie called The Hucksters that Clark Gable was in, and it was based on a book written by an ad man about a, a tyrannical radio sponsor. So they were concerned that audiences were going to become alienated by, you know, advertiser-controlled programming. And secondly, they understood that broadcasting could be a very powerful advertising medium if there was like an editor, like a magazine editor who was shaping the content. And the problem with advertisers controlling the programming was that they were controlling the programming the content and the advertising, and so they weren't looking at the big picture of how to shape the whole experience. And so those people like Pat Weaver and Hubble Robinson, they ended up becoming top executives in NBC TV and CBS TV and overseeing the programming and, and making the argument that the networks needed to be the ones responsible for shaping the entertainment experience and then delivering those audiences to advertisers. And a public policy would shift to really support that argument, to support the argument that, particularly with television, that given that it was being broadcast through public airways, that the public policy had to have some influence in shaping what went on. Yes, and in fact, the debate over the public interest was, um, you know, it was a huge debate. So um, in early um, legislation um, at the Communications Act, um, they said, well, uh, we'll, we'll give broadcasters these free licenses to operate over this public spectrum, the airwaves, and in return they have to operate in the public interest, convenience, or necessity. But how do you define that? And some of the radio reformers believe that radio should be an educational medium, like that everybody should be taking college courses on radio, sort of like what people are talking about today with the Internet. Um, but some of the broadcasters and advertisers said, well, no, what's in the public interest is what the public is interested in, and we're providing you know, entertainment that the public is interested in. However, by the 1950s, there was a lot of pressure to provide an alternative to this kind of advertiser control um, and there was a lot of pressure from the FCC also in trying to create more diverse programming and to, uh, you know, to serve more audiences. And so there was this sort of culmination of a number of events, um, both regulatory and economic, that meant that the networks and the stations then took over the programming and then they would turn to the FCC and the regulators and say, oh, look, we're serving the public interest because now we're offering more news programming. Uh, we're offering more educational programming. And it's also around this time that public broadcasting gets invented as a way of kind of um, providing an alternative to commercial broadcasting. But, of course, public broadcasting then becomes a service heavily dependent on sponsorship. Sponsorship in a kind of branded programming way, really. Exactly. Uh, mobile, Exxon Mobile, you know, sponsored Masterpiece Theater for decades. Right. And um, so it was kind of a return to the radio model, but, um, you know, slightly more hands-off. So the programming that was sponsored was not created and controlled by that sponsor so much as just financed by it. And today we're, we're returning to a lot of these models because advertisers realize that they want to reach certain kinds of audiences. Um, they need to integrate their advertising through, you know, other kinds of content, through entertainment, so they're beginning to not only finance, but control and produce some entertainment. AT&T just financed, um, produced a, a teen reality program called At Summer Break, which shows lots of teenagers using lots of phones. It's interesting, too, as we watch 
all of this repeat itself, and you've alluded to this a couple of times, and, and must have been interesting as you were doing the research for a word from our sponsor, how many of the internet issues that we're talking about today, and, and so many of the things that are problems today as the internet tries to find its business models, are really reminiscent of so many of these issues that went on in the early days of radio and then in the early television. Yes, exactly. And I think that every time we have a transition into a new technology, a new medium, um, you know, certain things have to be um, reformed. They, they have to be rearranged. So television, for example, was much more expensive to produce than radio. And so the whole business model of radio had to go through um, a transition and a change. And so both radio and television had to change their business model. And then now with the rise of digital media and the Internet, um, again, the same kind of issue is coming up where how do you make money off of the technology that provides all sorts of content for free for audiences? Um, and then at the same time, how does that then affect the existing technologies and the existing um, media industries like radio and television? And how do they adapt to that? And how do they um, reform themselves in order to uh, both make money and serve their audiences? Um, and throughout all of this, the reason I focused on advertising is that if you, if you understand what the advertisers are trying to do, you'll understand how the medium is changing because the advertisers are providing the money and the money will determine exactly what gets produced and what gets distributed. One of the interesting differences now, and you were talking about this with respect to when programs were on and that, you know, a drama might follow a comedy and that there wasn't any consistency because it depended on the niche that, that the advertiser was going for, that as we move from an appointment world to an on-demand world, that's created probably one of the most fundamental shifts in what we're talking about. Exactly. And almost, you know... Um the, the advertising strategies, you know, on the 30-second commercial, they were all dependent on this idea of um, targeting audiences who are attached to content, but the advertising itself was separate from the content. So if you were watching a drama and then there was a, a car commercial, you could identify that there were two different pieces of content. You knew it was a car commercial and then you knew it was a scripted drama. Um, the problem now was the decline of linear television is that when people are not watching the commercials um, inside the program because they're skipping around, because they're using all sorts of digital media technologies, then when you have a separate ad, um, audiences can avoid it more easily. Uh, they don't have to sit through it to get to the next scene of the drama. So advertisers then are returning to a lot of the integration strategies that radio um, advertisers use um, like having cast commercials, like having the characters in the show um, do the commercial or having the characters use the product. Um, you know, those are brand integrations. Or, um, um, for example, um, they, they also do things like um, they're actually uh, branding the show, like I just mentioned, with AT&T and um, the, tele you know, the phones. Everybody's mm -hmm. using the phones and the services, the AT&T services. So they're trying to be more subtle with how they reach audiences. And they're also debating, just like the radio advertisers did, how effective those strategies really are. So if an audience doesn't know it's an ad, is it really working as an ad, or, or audience is going to resent that? 
And radio advertisers are very worried about audience resentment, which is one reason why they did use all that integration. One of the other things that we see as, as a big element today that relates to exactly what you're talking about is the use of testimonials, particularly in radio, but even in television to a lesser degree. Yes, testimonials were, has, have been a favored ad strategy for over 100 years. And um, the use of celebrities um, in advertising, again, is becoming, I would say, probably, you know, another, a, a top strategy once again. Um, and celebrities using the products and, you know, testifying as to their usefulness. Um, in fact, the entire music industry today is essentially turning into a giant branded entertainment industry um, because musicians and artists find that they make a lot less money selling copies of recordings um, and they make a lot more money um, uh, from advertisers who pay them lots of money to, uh, you know, use their brands, um, refer to their brands, participate in their brands. So Pepsi, for example, um, you know, is a, a huge um, uh, sponsor of major music stars like Beyonce. Um, and I think this is going to continue because both the stars and the advertisers are both trying to reach an audience and they're both trying to reach and appeal to that audience and they're both hoping to have these positive associations come out of it. Nowhere is that more on display than in the world of sports where merchandising is king. Yes, exactly. So music and sports, um, and also because sports is a live event, um, I think that what we'll see in broadcasting is that Broadcasting, both television and radio, will become like the key live uh, platform. And um, like the Super Bowl, you know, it's the only program that captures a gigantic live audience of something like 90 million viewers. There is no other program, you know, in existence that captures a large audience like that. And advertisers are still interested in that kind of, you know, instantaneous reach, you know, reaching lots of people at the same time. Um, you know, to get sort of the power the message across. Um, so those kinds of events, like music events and sports events, I think will become more and more important to advertisers. And at the same time, like scripted drama and reality drama um, and all sorts of other kinds of entertainment forms are going to become much more um, integrated um, with sponsorship and brand integration um, and sort of more openly financed by advertisers because Advertisers know that those separate commercials, you know, are going out there and are being ignored, and they're very aware of that. What it really comes down to is that everything old is new again. Yes, <laughs> and I think about that quite a bit, where um, sometimes when people say, oh, we've got this, this new strategy, and then I go, well, you know, they were doing that in the 1920s. So, <laughs> um, but it's, it's not just so much that it's being repeated, it's also evolving into new directions. And I would say that today it's a much more sophisticated use of integration. It's more subtle. Um, it's more audience-friendly. Um, back in the olden days of the radio era, they, just, they, they, did, they felt that audiences were not too smart, and so they were constantly um, sort of explaining everything to the audience. And today, advertisers don't treat audiences that way. Cynthia Myers, the book is a word from our sponsor, Ad Men Advertising in the Golden Age of Radio. Cynthia, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.